This episode of Standard Orbit is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program for the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. Want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. This is Walter Koenig, Chekhov from Star Trek, and you're listening to Trek FM. Risk is our business. It's like nothing we've dealt with before. My golly, Jim, I'm beginning to think I can cure a rainy day. I can't change the laws of physics. Now in standard orbit, sir. Welcome, everyone, to Standard Orbit, Trek FM's dedicated podcast that covers the original and new cast of Captain Kirk and the Enterprise. I am Ken Tripp. I am Haley Stoddart. And I am Zach Moore, and Trek Madness is back. It's the movie edition, Trek Movie Madness, this time around. And we are welcoming the extra great crew of Earl Grey with us today. We have Amy Nelson. What's up, Amy? Hey, so glad to be back. So excited to talk some movies this time. That's right. We have Justin Oser. What's up, Justin? Hey, I'm doing great. Great to be back on Standard Orbit and not have to have to cover like 48 episodes. So that's cool. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> and we have, I think that's Richard Marquez. He's wearing he's wearing a, a headgear of some kind. Uh, I was promised warrior juice here. Where's my <laughs> warrior juice? It's in the green room. <laughs> well, good to see all you guys. And, and, you know, last time we did this, it had a great reception. It was great fun. Uh, and as you said, Justin, it was it was a little overwhelming doing 48 episodes. So, uh, you know, doing the movies this time, we're, we're taking kind of a different approach. We decided, you know, at least for this for this round of, of Trek movie madness, we'll 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 see how this translates in the future. But for this round, we're going to talk about the two most generally accepted best movies of the TOS and TG movie franchise, and then the two most generally accepted worst movies of the TOS and TG franchise. Amy's shaking her head. We'll get to that. On Earl Grey tomorrow, Amy. Uh, t- so tomorrow, we're doing Nemesis versus The Final Frontier. But today, on Standard Orbit, we're doing First Contact versus The Wrath of Khan. So the best versus the best this week, guys. So, Ken, what are your thoughts on this, man? I've been looking forward to this podcast because when you're talking about two great films in two grand fr- two great franchises, I think there's there's a lot of discussions. Now, like everything, nothing's perfect. But, you know, when, um, when both of these movies came out, they really needed a win. Uh, the, the original cast franchise after the motion picture, even though it made a lot of money, it didn't get a lot of great reviews, and they needed to hit it out of the park. And I think, arguably, it was the same for the next generation. I think Generations was generally, you know, okay, but it wasn't a, a knockout. It wasn't the best of both worlds. It wasn't, uh, you know, um, 
all, all good, good things. things. Yeah. So now, uh, you know, both have a follow up from their first movies, and and they both did extraordinarily well. So I, I, from my perspective, this ought to be a really good discussion with the perspectives from each podcast coming in on this. I'm, I'm looking forward to the show, and I'm I'm really glad to have Trek Madness on once again as well. Absolutely. Now, Haley, you were not being part of the last discussion. Did, did, what did you think of our of our uh, crazy 48 episode journey uh, back in March? That was, it was fun to listen to. Um, I I had moments. Not gonna lie, Richard, you broke my heart. <laughs> he broke all of he our broke hearts. A lot. Yes. <laughs> I broke your heart. <laughs> I yeah. So yeah, that ending, that final one when Richard went with oh. the TOS, I was like, really. <laughs> so I'm I'm excited. It'll be fun to hear everybody's thoughts. And I know tomorrow on Earl Grey, I'm gonna disappoint me again. She's not gonna like me. We'll we'll, we'll cross that bridge when it happens, Haley. Right now, it's all about the love. That's right, all about the love today. All about something else tomorrow. We'll get to that tomorrow. Uh, so today on Standard Orbit, we are talking the Wrath of Khan versus First Contact. You know, I, I figure we could just you know have a kind of open forum discussion. We can also hit on some you know general points, maybe like story characters, music, you know, stuff like that, and, and just kind of talk around it and kind of go, go around the, the round robin in here and, you know, our, our thoughts. So, uh, Ken, do you want to start off talking about, you know, the story, one versus the other, and, and uh, what your thoughts on that might be? Well, sure. I mean, to me, I think the, um, <laughs> the two stories were very different with a lot of similarities kind of built into it, and I thought that was, was pretty clever. I think the first thing that we saw that was... Uh, the same is they brought in old adversaries, you know, to to combat against. That was that was kind of cool. We had um, the the new Enterprise E making a glorious, I think, uh, you know, introduction in, into the show, which was a little bit more, but I really enjoyed that. Uh, the aspects of both vengeance were were a big piece of it. One from the villain side, one from the protagonist side, and you know, I I think like I said uh, when we first kicked off the show. Both movies had a lot of pressure to do very well. I think the stakes were higher for The Wrath of Khan because if The Wrath of Khan didn't do well, there probably wouldn't be all those thousands of hours of Star Trek now, right? So a lot of pressure on that movie. And for the generate for, for the TNG team, it was different because we were saturated in Star Trek. So they really had to get get make a really powerful film to get people in the theaters. Because there was so much Star Trek on TV, there had to be something to draw people in. And I think both films succeeded in doing what they needed to do to carry both franchises. So I, I think that was uh, some, of, some of the better aspects of it. So those, those, those were the comparisons I saw. The other thing I liked about both movies is they both used a lot of the, I wouldn't say below the line, but a lot of the other characters from the cast members, the bridge crew, to make it successful, right? They, they all had... You know, more scenes, Chekhov especially in The Wrath of Khan. And, you know, you had the whole away team element, I thought, in um, in, in in the TNG film. And I thought that First Contact did it well. You know, I think they did it well. And and so I, it was overall, both movies, I, I love them both. I, I really do for different reasons. It's funny because they're both looked at as the best in the franchise for both films. I mean, for both series. 
I, you know, I argue that on the on the original series side, but I certainly agree with that on the um, the next generation side. So mm-hmm. that's my quick synopsis of the two. Okay, all right. What about you, Amy? What what are your kind of general impressions uh, as we as we launch this discussion here? Well, <clears throat> oh, well, oh, that's that's a pregnant pause right there. <laughs> well, I. <clears throat> Well, we all know I love TNG, so first contact I could definitely go on. But Wrath of Khan, I've seen many times, and fortunately I was able to see with Ken and Richard um, when they had a showing at the theater. So that was very, very wonderful. And uh, it was good going with people who enjoy the original series because Ken was filling me in and all the backstory and this Khan character, and we watched Spacey together and... So I really got to appreciate the Wrath of Khan um, for exactly what Ken is saying. Like, it really did save the franchise, and it brought in interesting characters. You get to see, you know, like I said, the uh, secondary characters, especially Chekhov, take on a larger role in a movie, which is generally, you know, your Kirk, Spock, and McCoy show. So... I appreciate the Wrath of Khan for what it is. Okay, we'll, we'll leave it there for now. We'll leave it there for now. <laughs> it's an interesting place to stop speaking, but okay. More to follow. Yeah, I feel like there's like a cloud of lightning behind her coming in. Or something. <laughs> Some, something's gonna happen, folks. I'm bracing myself. Uh, so Haley, you know you've been you've been revisiting the original series movies, but you grew up a TNG fan. So this is this I'm sure you're in a similarly tough spot as as most of us here, as you mentioned. Uh, what what are your take on just overall these two films? I I like them both, and we can't say revisit the original series because it was a first time visit. So that's true. You, you visited. Yeah. <laughs> I visited it for the first time. Yeah. So. I mean, yes, I'm going to heavily lean more with First Contact because I grew up with TNG and that film for me is probably one of my favorites. It's in, but at the same time, I really love The Wrath of Khan and it was really interesting. So we, we actually watched the motion picture and then we watched Wrath of Khan before we had started the original series. So, because I think Chloe just wanted to watch a movie, and she wanted to watch a Star Trek one, and I said, well, hey, let's watch this one. And so it was really fun, I think, to go back, and you watch The Wrath of Khan, and then you go back and you watch Space Seed, because it just gives so much more to the character. Um, but I really enjoyed The Wrath of Khan as well. Justin, what about you? Yeah, this, this is quite interesting for me, because, like, in, in comparing the two, so on the one hand, there's... You know, I love TNG. I host a TNG podcast, but there's a lot of TOS movies that I love as well. Um, and and for First Contact, that is actually my favorite of any Star Trek movie quite easily now. It's, it's kind of changed a little bit over the years, but there's so much that I love about it, seeing First Contact with the Vulcans, and I think the Borg are used very well, and it's just an exciting and enjoyable movie start to finish for me. Now, probably unusually, and maybe echoing Amy a little bit, I haven't been a big fan of the Wrath of Khan, actually. Um, and before everybody composes their angry messages, I have a lot that I love about the movie, right? And part of it is that there are three other TOS movies that I love more. Wrath of Khan actually ranks fourth for me out of the six. Um, but that's partly because I love the other three that are above it. Uh, there's a lot that I do love about the movie, like the uniforms. I think the monster maroons that are introduced in Wrath of Khan are great. 
Um, I think the the actual like framework and the character interactions are fantastic. Um, and the ending with Spock's death is one of the most moving things in all of Star Trek. The problem that I have is with Khan. <laughs> I find him to be pretty one-dimensional, looking for just one kind of motive, and I have a hard time getting into that. So, like, ironically, there's a lot that I love about it, but the biggest issue I have is with, you know, the person that's in the title. <laughs> so... Anyway, but there, but again, there's a ton of, and I noted down, there's probably like 30 or 40 things that I love about the movie, but there's like a big thing that takes down my enjoyment so that it's actually fourth out of the six for me. Oh, well, interesting points. Some, some interesting points there we can, we can touch back on, on later. Yeah. That, and, and that's something I didn't even think about the uniforms, right? Both of these films mm-hmm. introduce new uniforms. Yeah. Uh, oh, you know, the, oh, and I should the, mention that the first contact uniforms are actually my favorite of any Star Trek uniforms. So I love the uniforms in both the movies. Yeah, I mean, the, these, the uh, Monster Maroons and the first contact uniforms, those are my two favorite uniforms. So that's, mm-hmm. that's ooh, ooh, these are good films. So Richard, man, you've been patiently waiting for your turn. What are your thoughts? I absolutely love both these films. Um, I, I saw First Contact before I saw Wrath of Khan. You know, it was it it held a special um a special memory because it, it was the first time I saw a Star Trek film with other Star Trek fans and all that kind of stuff in the theater, and it was great. It was um it was absolutely a great start to my fandom when I came back to the United States because I was in England before. Then I saw Wrath of Khan, and I can't even tell you how awesome that movie is beyond any movie I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> wow, high praise. Love the Wrath of Khan. It's 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 like it's like so like when I watched First Contact after a while or after uh, you know getting the tape or DVD or something like that, I skip parts of the movie. Wrath of Khan, I can't do that. I don't know why. It's one of those movies I have to watch from beginning to complete or end, and it's just one of the it's one of the my favorite movies in the whole entire world. Now, granted, I I, I do love First Contact. Both of them introduced very. Uh, militaristic kind of uh, uniforms and that's ultimate, uh, ultimately what I love about um, both films at the same time but I mean if I really had to choose between the two it'd be the Wrath of Khan <laughs> well you went right to the end there buddy I did, yeah. <laughs> did alright well that's going to do it for us on Standard Orbit no. <laughs> thanks everybody well yeah I, I don't think anybody is going to be surprised with how I f- will rank them but no, 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 not at all. And you know, and as for me, obviously, First Contact is my favorite next gen movie. I think if you nine times out of ten, Man on the Street, if you ask them, well, Trekkie on the Street, <laughs> if you ask them what their <laughs> yeah. favorite next generation movie is, they're going to say First Contact, and I would agree with that. I uh, it, it came out at the at the golden age, like the zenith of Star Trek. Right, you had next gen movies. Space Nine and Voyager on the air. The whole original cast was was still with us. Uh, the 30th anniversary of Star Trek when it came out, we had that great 30th anniversary special, uh, the celebrating everything. So that was like that we have we have yet, and we probably never will recapture that late 90s zenith of, of Star Trek. But you know, I mean, and it was a great movie too. Like that would have all been for naught if it wasn't a great movie, and it was. Uh, and then Wrath of Khan, you know, as all y'all have said, especially Kenya, it 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 changed the game. It it was a necessary win for the franchise. And if it hadn't been successful, then we wouldn't be sitting here talking about Star Trek. You know, thirty plus years later since it came out. So thinking about this, when we we're going to talk about this, I I saw a lot more similarities actually than than I than I would have thought of initially. Like, okay, so the it's the second movie of each you know franchise, right? If it's the TNGs two and Star Trek 2 is TOS is 2, obviously. There's uh, Revenge is the driving force. You had, you know, 
interesting twist in Wrath of Khan, the villain is Captain Ahab, right? Khan is Captain Ahab obsessed with Kirk, and Kirk is like the whale, you know? Uh, but in First Contact, Picard is Ahab, and they, they blatantly say it. I mean, you have Khan, like he has books, Moby Dick, and he quotes literature and stuff like that. But you have, you have you know, Lily and Picard talking about Captain Ahab in First Contact. And the Borg is the whale, you know. Uh, so that that's that's you know different shades of that. Also, you know, we, as we mentioned, they, they follow up on episodes. You know, one one was Space Seed. We're calling Montalban one of the most famous, memorable guest stars from the original series. Uh, the Borg, the iconic villain that came out of the Next Gen era. I did want, I did want to ask y'all about about the the follow up. Since both these movies followed up an episode, which one do you think did a better job of you know? one following it up like like as a fulfilling satisfying follow-up to what was set up and then also like explaining what came before to people who might not have seen the episodes because you know these are major motion pictures you get not everyone who went and saw these movies were familiar with the episodes so you guys uh, what are you guys thoughts on that i think uh wrath of khan actually does a lot better i think you can see wrath of khan without necessarily seeing space seed but there's a lot going on with captain picard in first contact that you need to see best of both worlds in order to fully understand like why he is having the struggle that he's having throughout the whole film. Yeah. I would have to echo Haley on that one. Cause I was just thinking it's like in the best of both worlds. I mean, in a sense we defeated the Borg by destroying that cube. And really there wasn't much else after that um, until Voyager, you know, the wrath of Khan, he gets what marooned on that uh, city alpha five. And there you go. See, but that's what I don't understand is, and I had the discussion with Ken, I don't understand this revenge because he shouldn't be mad at Kirk. Like it just, the story doesn't make sense to me because Kirk actually was doing him a favor and saying, look, here's a lovely planet. You guys can go be there. We won't, you know, punish you. I mean, Kirk was having compassion on Khan. And so Kirk had no idea or any control that that planet was going to self-destruct. Like, there there was no way that Kirk could do it. So the fact that Khan is mad at Kirk doesn't make sense to me. And so I don't see it as really revenge. I mean, he's angry, but it's like Kirk had no direct intention of hurting Khan. So the revenge story doesn't work for me. And I don't see it as a good follow-up to the the episode. Well, okay. So I know you have questions about this, Amy. <laughs> um, but the way that the way that I see it, you know, again, even though I have some issues with with the con character, is that there were a couple of things that happened. So, you know, they had the Enterprise had found these genetically enhanced people floating in space. And, you know, they tried to take over the ship and kill Kirk and all of that. And when that didn't work, he marooned them on this planet. I think you could easily argue that that wasn't the right thing to do, that he should just take them into custody over to whatever star base and have, you know, whatever kind of justice would, would be done there. So what he, I always found that to be a puzzling decision when he did that and something that could definitely make someone angry, like you marooned me on this planet, you know, like I have no chance to live in this society. And also... You know, these people that are genetically enhanced are driven by greed and power. And when you take that away, it's going to like really kind of simmer over time. And he blames Kirk for his wife dying and, and all of this. So even though it might not make rational sense, I think from the point of view of who he is and what he's been through, I think it, it can make sense. 
Well, I think if you look backwards, you know, remember, like if you if you just look at Rathacon as it is, and you don't like look at the how things actually play out in Spacey, that that logic completely makes sense, Justin. But the problem in Spacey is like at the end, he's like, yes. Uh, a world to conquer, an empire to build. You know, they were like very enthusiastic mm, about it. True. Yeah, and he was happy to be there and happy yeah. for being marooned. I mean, so he wasn't happy, happy after the after the planet got practically <laughs> uninhabitable and his wife died. So things right. conditions have changed. Yeah, so. that's that's the thing. Like like you know, he he mentions like you know, Kirk never bothered to check on their progress. You know, and that's what really you know set him off as far as like fix. He you know, circumstances happen beyond anyone's control. But as as many people do, like they they find something to fixate on, you know. Like, okay, well, Kirk left me here. He's gonna be the reason that I'm I'm gonna focus on my hatred for him for the next you know fifteen years, and that's became his focus because his people died, his wife died. They're living in you know a, a wasteland now, and that was not that was not the plan. You know, Kirk didn't leave them on this terrible plan. He left them on a good planet where they could you know build and and you know, et cetera. You know, and there's been books and comic books about this as well, kind of exploring like what it was like before City Alpha Six blew up and after it blew up. So I, I you know I have to I have to agree, honestly, like uh as far as um like a follow up to Space Seed, like Space Seed they say well, it'd be interesting to come back here in a hundred years and see what happened. Like that's an interesting concept, you know. Like in like you know the next generation. Like if there had not been Wrath, Wrath of Khan, right? You could do it on a next generation episode where they go to City Alpha Five and they see this great society. But then you know, et cetera, et cetera, something would happen. Is is Khan still alive? How what, what are the lifespans of these genetically engineered people? I don't know. But they didn't do that, so they had Khan, the Wrath of Khan. It it did not go according to plan. So. Yes, that's a good hook for a story, and obviously we've talked about that many times here on Standard Orbit. Like, obviously, if you're sitting there watching Star Trek as Harvey Bennett did, that is an obvious story to follow up on. Is that like, you know, it kind of subverts expectations, I guess, you know, the, of what a follow up to that story would be? Um, because I, I do, I will, I will say this: as iconic as Ricardo Montalban's Khan is, and I, I think he should have been nominated for, you know, like an a supporting actor Academy Award. I think he has a brilliant performance. Um, but he was a more interesting character in Spacey because he has a lot more layers to him. You know, he's like controlled. Mm-hmm. He 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 loses cool a couple times, but he quickly recomposes himself. And, and that's a more interesting villain. You know, in uh, Wrath of Khan, he's just like revenge, revenge, revenge the whole time, single minded. Yeah. And of course, he has the you know whenever you have these kind of villains, you always have the like the standard number two guy. He's like, hey man, like can we can we take a step back and not do this? <laughs> you know, the voice of reason like uh, Yolkum. Yakim Joe, how do you say his name, Ken? Can you help me out here? What's his name? Yoakim. Yoakim, excuse me. <laughs> That's like I can never pronounce it. Um, so you know you have that going on, and you're like, yeah, man, you you have a ship, you have a weapon, just go 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 build your planet, go find an empty planet, shoot this torpedo at it, and you get your city Alpha Five again. Uh, mm-hmm. So that would you know that would have made sense. So I so yes, I I would say that probably. First contact more delivers on what might have been promised in the series better than Rathacon delivers on what was promised in its series. That doesn't make it necessarily better or worse, but as far as expectations go, it kind of went away that most people might not have expected. So, well, I think that um, you know, to your point, Zach, I, I think the reasons for Khan being obsessed make sense because everything's enhanced, right? And you, you got to kind of keep that in mind. So it doesn't matter what it is. If he, <laughs> if he's mad at somebody, he's angry at a level that we can't even comprehend. And if he blames somebody for something, it's it's just way off the charts. You know, 15 years. It was six months, just six months after they were left there. I know those lines very well. <laughs> <laughs> that that the whole thing exploded, right? So for 14 and a half years, they were decimated. And he also watched a lot of his uh, 
crewman die from that nice little city eel. That was a cute little kitty. But, uh, you know, I, I, I hear what, what you're saying, too, and, it, and it's funny because context, I think, is king in all these things, and we're all coming at it from, from different times and different eras. So if I can, uh, because I think we have a lot of people who are coming into uh, first contact as, you know, Richard's first movie, you know, Justin came into TNG as well as actually all, all of you did. <laughs> I was probably the only one, right, that was, <laughs> it seems to be the case more and more. Uh, you know, but just to give you some context, you know, when when the Wrath of Khan opened, it was the single biggest box office. It hit all the box office records for one weekend's draw. So there were people that were clamoring for this movie, right? And it had to hit well because they wanted to see something different from the motion picture. But Star Trek was now just beginning to, to rise. It was also... Um, the, the movie, it, it made really decent uh, box office. So that, that kind of carried things, uh, I, I think, very, very well. And I think the other thing was the um, the emotion of losing Spock, too, carried a lot of weight. Now, what came from Wrath of Khan also, you know, 3 and 4 and then TNG, all big, big things uh, in in the picture. But, but there's a lot of, like, firsts for Wrath of Khan. Uh, not only was it the first movie to hit whatever number it did, 40 or $50 million in one weekend, which back then was a tremendous amount of money, uh, you know, not— I wouldn't say it's like Avengers-like, but it's close <laughs> back in the day. And I think if E.T. hadn't come out a week or two later, it would have even been uh, even stronger for the summer. That's how that's how old this movie is. The other the other piece I think that's uh, in, important to realize it was also the first commercially you know given VHS tapes. So it, for for those of us that have been around a little bit longer and uh, you know, used VHS equipment and all that other stuff. The Wrath of Khan was the first movie you could watch at home, like you can a DVD. And so there's, it's been very saturated. You know, it's it's one of those movies where I would have to say, even though I would agree with some of you, it's not my favorite Star Trek movie. It's not, but it's up there. Um, it's probably the one I've seen the most, right? I, I, I'm guessing I could do every line from start to finish. Hey, you know, we have time. Let me start. <laughs> oh, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> Wait, wait, that'll be a supplemental so, episode. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. You, you, you can see all the recordings going. Stop! Shut <laughs> off! Yeah. Anyway, but um, but that I'm only saying that because I think that um, you know, there's a, there's a lot to it, and it, and what, that's why I say context is king. A lot of times in these discussions, it's kind of like where you were, where you came into it, and what you see. I have never heard Justin's criticism of Ricardo Maltabon's performance or of the villain. I have only heard the opposite and Nick Meyer being called a genius for keeping him tight and not over the top and making him really sinister and one of Trek's best villains. So it's funny, like I said, context is king, perspectives. It doesn't mean he's wrong. It's just well, none of us are so wrong. It's, it's just different perspectives, right? That's exactly like, and, right. And for that, me, I'm, exactly I'm not right. saying that I have a problem with Ricardo Montalban's acting. I actually have a problem with how the character mm -hmm. is written. It feels mm -hmm. very one-dimensional, very revenge-driven, and I feel like I've seen a lot of that elsewhere, and I expect a little more nuance from a Star Trek character than that. Well, and I, I think, think that's, that's, that's I think that's fair, yeah. but I think he might have started it. Yeah, right? that's, that's exactly that's what I was going to say. Difference. Yeah, when you, when you see like all those Trek movies afterward, they're trying to replicate it. It, it, it seems tired but it actually set the trend instead of us following a trend. Well, it's like best of both worlds. I mean, we didn't really have that drop-off where you were left hanging for so long. And now it's 
all over television. Episodes drop something and they leave it and then that's the end of the season and then you're like, wait, 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 what? You know, and TNG started that. There wasn't really that either. So there's been a lot of, and I feel how Justin feels about Khan. I kind of feel that way about Shinzon a little bit. Oh, that's for Earl Grey. Earl Grey. I know, but I was just, I just, before I Haley? forget, because <laughs> I will forget. We, we didn't install a buzzer yet in her apartment. <laughs> <laughs> we need an electric choke collar. Wow. Wow. Oh, my. Wow. Let's, let's keep collar. it respectful, boy. I will. I, I'll, yeah. Well, there I, will you be know, things Amy will like. I promise. I, I think. I think we can all. I think we can all look back on Rathacon and say yes. It is the most historically important Star Trek movie. Well, I would absolutely agree, agree that. with that. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it, it is extremely historically important. Just from my enjoyment perspective, I rank it lower. That's mm-hmm. all. Exactly. And, you know, I, I equate it to something like, you know, Superman the movie, which is like the godfather of, of all superhero comic movies. It's my personal favorite. I grew up watching it. Um, it's like the gold standard, right? Is it necessarily better than all the other ones that have come after it? No, but it's definitely the most important, I'd say. So they kind of, when you, when you look at these favorite best, most important, all these nebulous terms floating around. Uh, but you know, that's what it is. Wrath of Khan, right? We, we wouldn't be here without it. So let's, let's, let's start nitpicking a little bit. Cause that's fun. I enjoy doing that. <laughs> uh, we'll see. <laughs> uh, a couple things on Wrath of Khan. First of all, uh, plot holes, right? So City Alpha 6 explodes. And nobody counts the planets in the city alpha system. They just they just go, oh well, that must be that's the most that's is that the one on the outside? Yeah, that must be number six. Let's go there. No, it's number five. Well, like, and, I, and you would th- <laughs> you would think Chekhov would be like, oh, the city alpha system. Let's not touch any of those planets because uh, reasons. Well, let's just go somewhere else. You know, mm-hmm. like <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, do you know how many like planets there are in the in the galaxy? Yeah. <laughs> like, can you pick that system and that place to go? Yeah. Uh, but that also so fail on the Reliance Science crew for not noticing there's less planets than there should be uh one of our planets is missing that's a title Ooh. of an animated series episode yeah but justin that's a great point that ties into another retcon plot hole check off knowing con does that bother anyone ken you were there in 1982 did that bother you you knew that check wasn't in that episode and you saw him mention i Khan. saw him and it was funny because uh, you say that because the first thing i said he wasn't on that episode he wasn't in that <laughs> yes. episode like a lot of us back then however I just happened to go to a Star Trek convention, which was in June of that same year in Boston, with Walter Koenig, right? And of course, he's he's high as a kite, and um, you know, <laughs> he, that was the first time he told the story that he was actually on the ship, and that um, Khan had Montezuma's revenge and was trying to get into the bathroom, and Chekhov was in there, and that's why he never forgot him. <laughs> and that, that's that's that was his his retcon story. Um, <laughs> You know, and, and the other thing was he was wearing a T-shirt, I'll never forget, either. It said, not tonight, Chekhov, I have an earache. Well, that was kind of funny. <laughs> <laughs> so so, so did, it, did it bother me a, a little? I mean, as I've gotten older, a little older, watching a lot of Star Trek, I've really started to lighten up on that stuff. I think back in the day it bothered me a little bit, but I always liked Chekhov. He was one of my favorite um, cast members. You know, part of the bridge crew. I thought he was, you know, one of the funnier ones. So if anyone was to have a shot at something, it it should have been him in that in that aspect. I, I thought he uh, he he was he did a very well in the role. I thought he he did a nice job with it. I was happy for him. A lot of people thought, you know, that that Sulu deserved a chance or whatever. It, it, they were going to rotate all those things out, but 
it did it bother me at the time a little after the convention not really you know i had that in my head well i think it sticks out less now because there's so much star trek after so many years you know and when it first happened i mean everybody has repeatedly watched these episodes on syndication for 10 years you know so they're burned into your brain and when you're like hey that's that's an error. That's that's not Chekhov. He wasn't in Space Seed. So for all, for all of us kind of teensy era fans here, guys, did, did that bother anybody, Chekhov, uh, not being in Space Seed but knowing Khan? No. I mean, I, no. I even before I heard the convention story, I always figured, like, Chekhov was somewhere else on the ship, and he was only promoted to being on the bridge crew in the second mm-hmm. season. No yeah. big deal. Yeah, yeah no cool. big deal. I, did, right. I didn't even know it was a plot hole, so. <laughs> <laughs> all right, yeah, it so, doesn't bother me too much, so yeah. Mm-hmm. All, all is forgiven for that one, but let's talk about another huge retcon, which a lot of people say broke the Borg, and I'm kind of on the fence about this, but the Borg Queen, right? That mm-hmm. is a retcon. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> if you look up retcon in a dictionary, that yeah. is a picture of the Borg Queen in it, because, you know, the Borg ha- had been established as a collective. They speak with all their voices at once. That's what makes them such a powerful entity. They don't have the weakness of a single leader who can make a mistake, and et cetera, et cetera. And that's kind of what made them more fascinating. But hashing out the story of First Contact, they realized without some kind of main villain, if you will, or villainess, they would just be fighting like zombies in space, right? Which is kind of, you know, scary in its own way. So I don't know that there's, it's hard to weigh. I mean, I don't. I, I I thought it was interesting because you think of because we always thought of the Borg as like insects and bees. So yes, all you know, there's a queen. There's a queen bee for all beehives, right? So it kind of it made sense, and I I went with it, and it's never really bothered me. But I I totally see why people have an issue with it. Uh, what are you guys' thoughts on on the Borg queen being uh, invented for first contact? I don't think it was invented. I mean, look at Lore. He was able to get control of you know, certain Borg and, and became their leader. And it was completely acceptable. And like you say, like this hive mind that has been talked about, you know, in the episodes of what the Borg are, it does make perfect sense that there's going to be this queen, this leader, you know, if you're going with the hive mind. I mean, Lore was able to accomplish it. So who's to say that this woman can't do the same thing? Well, Lord did a bad job, I'd say. Well, <laughs> because agreed, easily but it was, but I mean, still, he was in control. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? I think for me, I I put it in my head that she was the original. Me because too. I mean, obviously, these these had to start somewhere. Someone, you know, and I can't remember what I was reading. I was reading something, and it kind of talked about this and how someone somewhere created whatever virus that created the Borg and it just spawned from there. So there has to be that originating point. So in my head, she's the originating point. I'm still not super crazy about the whole thing with her in there, but in my head, that's how I put it. And so it makes it slightly okay. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm completely fine with it. I mean, I think when I first saw First Contact, the thought that I had was, you know, we're getting a window into something that we weren't able to see within the confines of something like Best of Both Worlds, and that the Borg have, you know, this ability to have, you know, a, a queen or some figure that can speak to them in that way that can help them to assimilate certain races where they would need that. And actually, like, there, there's a complete explanation of how this makes sense and, you know, why there's a Borg queen and why they're on different ships and some of them look similar in the Destiny trilogy, which is an amazing trilogy of, of novels. So I always think of it also now in terms of what I read in that book, but it, it's never really bothered me. I figured it was just an aspect of what they do with assimilation with certain races we just hadn't seen before. And I think the writers 
were correct in putting the Borg Queen in as kind of more of a, a focus instead of, you know, there's these mindless zombies that you have to just kill and defeat. Mm-hmm. I, I think it led to an interesting aspect of the movie. Justin, I knew you were going to bring up the books, man. You were <laughs> the encyclopedia of Trek literature, yeah. Justin. Osterfield. I wouldn't say that. <laughs> I haven't read them all, but I've read quite a few. <laughs> but no, I mean, well, but, but, every, but, every, no, yeah. I love it. Every podcast that, that when somebody brings up a question, like, well, actually, you know, there's a novel about that. I'm like, I knew Justin would come in with that. <laughs> there's a there's lots to that of great episode. stuff, out, stuff yeah. out there that explains these things, and it does explain it. But, no, that's great. Yeah. yeah, everybody's trying to build a bridge. Richard, what are your thoughts on that? So it's funny you guys mentioned that because someone started an argument in a group of mine um, about, uh, well, if the Borg Queen was killed in first contact, then technically it wouldn't have existed in Voyager. And You um, think in such three-dimensional terms, Richard. Well, yeah. yeah, I'm just saying. Like, I'm just, it, it ultimately erupted. And I'm like, you know, I never thought the there was only one queen. I figured, uh, you know, as organized as the um, Borg Collective would be, that they would be like have different divisions or something like that you know the queen division of the board you know it's it wouldn't be it wouldn't be so uh dramatic if you lost one queen it would just replace it you know yeah redundancy um, is key for any technology yeah exactly i mean say the federation has redundancies i would assume the borg has redundancies it makes more sense but like i mean i never thought of it as um, oh, this one queen's gone, and there goes the whole collective. Yeah, and if you think about it in terms of insects, bees can make new queens as well. So Exactly, mm-hmm. exactly, yeah. yeah. So that's how I thought of it as. I did think it was a, I mean, honestly, I didn't think it was a plot hole, or, or it broke the board, to be quite honest. Mm-hmm. And I didn't understand it when people started saying that. I'm like, no, that's not well, how Hive works. But if you look at it, if you look in TNG, right, even between Q, Who, and Best of Both Worlds, there's like a, a change in the board. Because because they even say like oh that's interesting they were only interested in our technology before and now they're assimilating people and so the Borg has, has constantly been in retcon throughout their entire history so th- I guess that's why I kind of went with it more than others might have mm. yeah yeah you know for me it wasn't a um, a big plot hole to me you know what was kind of retconned we didn't really talk about it was I guess the insinuation that Locutus or or Picard was special or unique because he quote unquote resisted, and um, that was that was part of it that I just kind of shook my head a little bit because he was fully assimilated. He got out of it, but you know it wasn't anything he really did himself. And I thought that was just kind of an interesting plot device that I couldn't really comprehend. You know where that was coming from. I knew he was high in the hierarchy as Locutus and running the show. He himself was like a Borg king. For that ship, right? Because he was leading the attack, so to have similar. But that was really slow. I, I didn't see any real plot holes or anything that you had to do a lot of recon, retconning on in, in First Contact at all. I, I really thought it was a very complete movie without a lot of holes, other than, like I said, little things like that where I was just trying to go, you know, raise my eyebrows a little bit. I'm not sure why he was so special or unique because he quote-unquote resisted. But other than that, I thought the, uh, the Boar Queen was a scary character though she uh she was good really good yeah yeah and then her whole interplay with data is a very interesting subplot it going was. on there and uh the it whole was. the whole it's just creepy too i remember even in the trailers like you see data's like flesh face like what is this all about you know so that that was a very interesting subplot to i mean hey the movies of the picard and data show so they didn't have a subplot but that was a really good subplot 
So I have no complaints about that. So, you know, it's just one of those things. And I have no problem with, I know it's 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 a fun line to make fun of, you know, three-dimensional terms. Blah, blah. But, yeah, she would just upload her consciousness into, like, the, the cloud that is the Borg Collective, you know, and download it into the next body uh, who, you know, Seven of Mine meets on Voyager and Janeway talked to on Voyager. So that, I, I didn't have a, a problem with that. So those are some little plot holes. One other kind of, one other thing I just wanted to know you guys' thoughts on is, so the Borg, right, They their plan all along, is to go back in time and assimilate humanity, or did they just decide to do that as a last ditch effort because the cube oh. failed at Earth? Because it's a backup plan for sure. Okay, is how I backup read plan. It. Yeah, I agree. You know what? I mean, like the the biggest problem with first contact is that once again they just send one cube. Like mm. really, you need to send more if you want to be more effective there. <laughs> so they're overconfident. Yeah, but it has the special. The special sphere inside it, which yeah, we're, we're kinda, apparent- like why can't it be like a smaller cube like. We always, it's always the cube. No, it's Because we have to sell more toys. You could get a smaller cube. It looks like the other cube. I like the sphere. I, I was like, oh, cool. Look, geometric shapes. I like that. So Yes. <laughs> anyway. Well, yeah, you know, we, we're talking about the queen here. So, you know, let's talk about kind of some of the, some of that, the villains and acting and, and that kind of stuff. I think, you know, if you had to like, you know, blow for blow, I'm going to pick Mercola Montalban's Khan over Alex Cringe's more queen. I just think he's, he's a better villain. Now, they're both great villains. But I'm going to go with Khan. I think he was more memorable and iconic. And his kind of like, when, when you at, he's like in the, the top, when you see lists of like the top movie villains of all time, he's on it, right? Now, the Borg Queen, one of the best Star Trek villains, but not one of the best villains of all time. So I'm going to give that edge to Khan. Uh, I would agree. The, the, she was great, but, you know, there's so many um, references to Khan in pop culture. It's, it's just a movie that is so large, so big. Khan was so large and so big. I mean, they, they they tried and failed and into darkness to try to pull him back and, and reinvent the character a bit. But, you know, I, I always thought, and, and it could be to, you know, to Justin's point too, I, I've been saturated with it, reading um, so much about um, the character, how Nicholas Meyer directed Ricardo Montalban, all the interviews with Ricardo Montalban. He's so well known for that character, you know, um, Alice Creed, who who Krieg, who who played the Born Queen, did a great job, but just doesn't get that kind of notoriety or or acknowledged. You know, it it hasn't become a big part of um, pop culture. It became a big part of Star Trek's culture, no doubt. So I just think from that alone that uh, it it pushes Ricardo Montalban's Khan, you know, above it. Plus, he did play him twice. You know, both in the original series and in the movie, so he, he, you know, he was strong enough to pull back after all those years. And damn, I mean, <laughs> he was he was one big badass character too. You know, I mean, they they talk about the fact that when when he took his uh, his shirt or whatever he was wearing that cloth to protect him from the sandstorm, that that was all him. I mean, he was one big <laughs> dude for his age too. He was in great shape. So. I, I think that you know he was he was just that intimidating. I felt uh, the Borg Queen was manipulative and you know kind of scary in that way. It was like oh you know you you don't know what she's gonna do next. She had a calmness about her, and it's it's hard because I loved both characters. But it just to answer your question, I would have to say it was Khan. You know you mentioned Khan's introduction scene, which is brilliant, right? That slow kind of reveal. He's pulling back the the the, the scarfs and the visor, you know, and the, and the glove. One glove, only one glove. Big Michael Jackson fan. <laughs> yeah <laughs> the Borg Queen like she has one of the most awesome intros 
of any she villain. Does. She's like, I am the beginning, the end, the one that is many, you know? And I'm like, whoa, you know? And then she comes down from the ceiling. That's a great special effect, too. You know, if you see how they did it, like, she was, like, laying on a plank with, like, a blue screen in front of her, and they have the little animatronic little, little spine and all that. Just creepy kind of, like, alien H.R. Geiger stuff with the Borg and her. And uh, But anyway, it's just a very, very effective uh, introduction for both of them. But, but Justin, you know, you not being the, the biggest con fan in this film, what are, your, what are your thoughts on this? Well, first, I have to disagree with your premise. I don't think that the villain in First Contact is the Borg Queen. The villain in First Contact is the Borg themselves, okay. right? Okay. And so I think when you think of it on that level, um, I think the the Borg as a villain, I, I think even outside of Star Trek, are pretty well known. Um, may, maybe not as much as Khan, or maybe depending on who it is. But And I think when you think of that, like one of the things that I think about is Khan's ambition in Star Trek II. His ambition is to get vengeance on Kirk and then maybe do something else to harm the Federation? I don't know what his next move would be. But the, the Borg's ambition is to actually like assimilate Earth and the Federation in the past. So I actually see the Borg as a scarier villain because they have much bigger ambitions to change everything, right? Everything that we've seen in, in Star Trek as opposed to getting vengeance on one person and maybe in some nebulous way using his one ship to harm the Federation. So I... I see them as kind of a, a scarier adversary. Well, the one thing I'll say, Justin, mm-hmm. just to follow up, nothing you said was wrong. I just think that Khan's ambition after Kirk was to take over the Federation, using the Genesis device, using his people, using that starship. So I think the same, it wasn't game-changing where people are losing and being assimilated, but I think that Khan's next, and that, I felt that was fairly clear in the movie, he just got so obsessed and wrapped around the axle about Kirk because he couldn't kill him it was delaying his ability, and that's why they took Genesis mm. in the first place to leverage that. Yeah. What about you, Amy? Yeah, I have to give it to the Borg. I think because that history with the Borg that they've always wanted to assimilate and get new technology, and like that has been their mantra for the whole entire time that we've known the Borg up until this point. And so it definitely is a real threat. You know, I mean, it it was introduced in Q Who, you know, where it's like, here is this uh, nemesis, if you will, that (laughs) you are not going to be able to defeat. And so it was sort of set up that way that it's like, this is a foe that we are not going to be able to handle. We're not prepared for And it really comes to fruition in First Contact, especially with them now going back to the past to assimilate Earth and and that being their overall goal. I think the Queen does a very, very good job interacting with both Data and Picard and how she plays them differently. And I just think her range and how that character was written, I give it to the Borg. Richard, what about you? I'm going to have to give it to Ricardo Montalban as well. I love the introduction in Space Seed. He's very, very proper, very majestic. And you don't know what his intentions are. I mean, you really don't know what's going on until the the actual story starts to unravel. And I absolutely love... Like he's definitely old world. I mean, obviously, you know, our time, our time frame and then goes into the future. But like, it's just... I, I find him more terrifying because you know what he, well, you don't know what he's going to do. Um, you, you, I mean, granted, you know, obviously Kirk beating him in a, in a three dimensional world, 
which you know, yeah, <laughs> I, I can't believe he can't. He didn't actually figure because there out. weren't planes in 1996, right? I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and apparently right? <laughs> he doesn't know or can't think of that you can he should reset the prefix code. That but, well. okay? So I will say this: that's the one thing that really bothered me. That was it. That was it. That was the only. Uh, that's the only piece. That's always. If, that's if, always. If you don't, me. if you don't know it exists, how would you? Uh, well, I mean, you'd think the first thing he would do is to try to find out, like when he gets on the ship, everything he possibly can. I don't know. Maybe he wouldn't have access to it, but not thinking in three dimensional terms. There's no excuse. Well, not for that. thinking in three dimensional. <laughs> I'm, with, I'm with you there. Yeah. <laughs> I'm with you there. Yeah. Uh, anyway, you wouldn't be able to navigate the ship if you didn't think three dimensional at least. But anyway, that's okay. That's <laughs> that's split nicks. <laughs> but like, um, but like with the Borg, you know what their intentions are. You're, they're basically, I mean, they're gonna uh, uh, assimilate humanity. Great. <laughs> it's like uh, okay what do you mean so, great that is you like that? the largest like, no 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 I'm, yeah I'm but about, you guys you guys like, changed the no, narrative no, 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 the no, question but... was the Borg queen and Khan well, I changed it because I just agreed with the premise and then Amy said the Borg are the biggest villain I'm and it's getting like, there on. okay <laughs> I said both give Borg me a minute <laughs> so I'm just saying like you know when we're talking about the, uh, their motivations and how they get there I think Ricardo Montalban has the edge more than the Borg. Now, granted, now I'm not saying. I mean, their both goals are going to be obviously either take over or destroy humanity. One of the two doesn't really matter which one you choose. They're both devastating. But what I'm saying is that Ricardo Montalban right there is is uh, a little bit more edgier than uh, the Borg is because you don't know what he's going to do because he doesn't plan. He doesn't uh, uh, roll out the damn uh, red carpet or or map and shows you exactly what he's going to do. You know what the Borg's going to do. Well, I'll, I'll I'll say this, and then and then I'll get to you, Haley. I just I just need to interject something that, that sparked in my head there. I I, I always feel like a, a more human villain is always more intimidating than a kind of sci-fi esque kind of villain. You know, like 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 Hannibal Lecter, right? And Anthony Hopkins, Hannibal Lecter, one of the most iconic film villains. Uh, Norman Bates, right? And from Psycho, uh, these are people, and it's more unsettling when it's just like a person who could just snap and do something because that's what you can encounter in real life. Now, like a monster or an alien looking thing intimidating scary right but at the same time you're not going to encounter that in real life so there's like something in the back of your brain that knows it's fake and it's not as intimidating as maybe a a quote-unquote real flesh and blood person so maybe i don't know about you but i got i had nightmares with aliens (laughs) 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 so well Haley, what's your take on all this if we're going to compare khan and the board queen i'm gonna give it to khan um You don't watch First Contact for the Borg Queen. You watch Wrath of Khan for Khan. I mean, you watch it for everything else, too, but but you mostly watch it because you want to see Khan and you want to see his his you know manipulations and and everything else but you don't watch First Contact for the Borg Queen herself. You watch it for everything else that is in the film. So if we're going to compare those two villains, I'm going to go with Wrath of Khan. Um and kind of what you were saying Zach about, you know, science and AI and you're not as in the back of your head, you're not as fearful as what AI is going to do to you. I mean, granted, as we advance, I think we're going to all be kind of afraid of AI. <laughs> but but I'm going to go with Wrath of Khan. Gotcha. All right, cool, cool, and cool. Khan. Yep, on that one. Well, there are a lot of other characters, obviously, in these films beside the villain. Uh, I do want to kind of mention just, I think, like, Patrick Stewart, this is arguably his best performance in one of the feature films mm-hmm. here, especially that scene with Lily, you know, no, I, it's kind of a meme now, oh, like, yeah. Mr. John, yeah, but that's powerful stuff, right? You take it out of context, you can like, it, it becomes a meme, but in the context of everything, and just to see his descent, 
you know, into his spiral downward. Because this, this is Captain Picard. This is like Earl Grey tea and horses and archaeology, right? And he is like on, on, he is on a mission. He is, he has become Khan. He is Ahab, you know, in, in this movie. Uh, but at the same time, William Shatner is Kirk. Arguably, his best performance is Kirk in Wrath of Khan. You know, he's he's contra- he's contemplative. He's retrospective. He's trying to see where he is in, in the life at this point. He's has a midlife crisis. You know, so it's at least you know I, I think they're, they're pretty much equal as far as you know, the best performances of the captains in each of these films. And I think that's a huge factor why these films are considered the best from each of the franchises. I have a question. Just. Gonna throw it out there. So, as far as subplots, would you say which is better, the Genesis subplot or the uh, uh, going back in time? Oh, who's the, the Phoenix? Zephyrin Cochran. Cochran. Yeah, Zephyrin Cochran. Yeah. Would mm-hmm. which sub? Who was from TOS, by the way? Just putting that yes, up there. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Amy, that's a, a change. <laughs> change slightly. <laughs> that yeah, change like no. That that's a great question, Amy, and. You know, I'm going to say the first contact subplot because I thought that was a brilliant way to kind of show us the history of the future, right? The, the ever-present future, guys. We're only about 50 years away. Can't wait till first Can't contact wait. day. But We'll have th- to meet up sh- in, in 45 years and that's see what right. we think of first contact then. <laughs> We're going to have a live podcast in the Vulcan's <laughs> land in Montana. Oh, my um, gosh. That'd be so funny. Well, yeah, I, I think that's a that's a really clever way because, like, let's do time travel, but let's time travel to something we kind of know about. Like, we, we know about Warp Drive. We know about First Contact. We know about Zephyrin Cochran, right? Let's let's kind of make that canon. Like, let, let's see that on screen. And, and it's fun, too, right? Because you get Troy getting drunk with him in the bar, and you get stuff like Barkley being nervous about Zephyrin Cochran and him not wanting Zephyrin Cochran not being the hero you thought he was, right? I thought that was a great angle to take, like, if you went back in time and met these guys before, you know, before George Washington, before he was George Washington, he's not going to be some mythic guy. He's just a guy doing his thing, you know, and then people from the future tell him you're the most important guy in history. He's going to like, I don't want to be a statue. <laughs> and he runs away. <laughs> I, lo- I loved all that on the planet. And I, and I think it, it really complimented balanced out the film well, because you had like, you know, horror, like you know, aliens-esque kind of stuff going down on the Enterprise. And then you have, you know, stakes but you know light-hearted stakes more on the planet and that that balanced complementing themselves well if i yep. may just quickly um i agree i think with with where you're going with that but i i don't want to shortchange the subplot of the genesis torpedo or what that device meant at the time the movie was made 1981 or so i mean there was a lot of stuff about you know we were still in the arms race the nuclear arms race there was the whole you know um philosophical question is, is this the right thing to do? You know, because it, it had that, you know, we, we talk about overpopulation, starvation, this device in particular being used. It, it just had a lot of impact, I think. It was a very, very clever, I thought, thought process. And, and it was sold as, you know, is this the beginning of universal Armageddon? There were a lot of discussions back then, not just about that episode, but whether we should or not go after that type of science. Should we play in that realm? So that was, you know, that that playing God thing with humans was was big back in the day. And I think that was a very important part. And from a special effects point of view, you you probably all know this, but that Mm -hmm. was the first computer generated effect used in motion pictures was that Genesis planet when they showed that on screen. And it was wild to see back then. Now it's it still holds up pretty well, but it, it was a pretty wild ride when they were showing that tape of the 
you know, the, the uh, asking for funding for funding. <laughs> so there's still money in the 21st century <laughs> for, for the generous, pro- the Genesis, yeah, to the Genesis project. So, yeah, I, I just, uh, I, I, I agree with what you're saying, I, I, but I don't want to minimize the, um, the backstory and how clever it was in the Wrath of Khan. We, we talk about the villain and all that stuff, but Genesis itself, I thought was brilliant in its concept. And um, it, it just, like I said, it created a lot of great discussion back in the day. It might've been, more profound, but I did find First Contact more entertaining. I'm not arguing that. I'm not arguing that. Well, Go ahead, Haley. Well, I was going to say, you know, I mean, how much would we have had Star Trek Three? the story would have been changed if we they hadn't put in that Genesis project into two. So, and also, I think from a science perspective, if we could have something like that happen where we can have that technology, and they kind of do a little bit with the spores thing in Discovery, but that's another another topic, another show. But that would be really, really neat if we could actually create something that could do that and turn a planet that's been dead or never fully alive into something where we could actually be and have plants and have life and be able to colonize a planet, that's kind of an epic way of doing it. You are so Spock, Haley. <laughs> right? Because it, it goes right to that scene, right? And, yeah. and then, then McCoy asks the question, well, suppose it's used on a planet that already has all this. Well, then it would destroy it such in favor life. of its new matrix, right? And then it's like... It's new know, matrix. It, it's, it's new matrix. Yeah, it's great. That's what I mean. It was a great discussion point. Mm-hmm. It really was. Mm-hmm. And that's what that's what tapped into that's what tapped into the TOS flavor that was a lot of people thought was missing from the motion picture that kind of interplay between the characters there so for sure mm-hmm. hey, go ahead yeah, go ahead sure. Haley I was just gonna say I'll have to ask uh, Doctor Siegel what he thinks about that there you go Is, right he didn't include that <laughs> damn yeah he's gonna have to write another book and we'll have to have him on again just now oh, hey, we'll, we'll get him back we'll get him back <laughs> Richard what are your thoughts man um. I don't know. It's kind of hard to choose. Um, I'll just give it the first con- uh, the Zephyr Cochran story. I mean, really, because we, we need to see the beginning anyway. I mean, it's fun to see the beginning of where it all started. And, um, you know, I, I mean, I but like just like Kid, I mean, I like the Genesis uh, part of it, too. I mean, if we had to choose one, it'd be the Zephyr Cochran one. <laughs> Justin? Yeah, so, I, I mean, the Genesis project and device is one of the things that I love about Star Trek Two. I think it's it's something really great and interesting concept. I mean, it, even if it seems pretty far-fetched that, you know, you can launch a torpedo and a few minutes later life starts up, I think somewhere in this century we're going to go out into the solar system and try to terraform a planet like Mars or maybe the moon or something like that. And so we need to think about those things and what it means and what the consequences are. So I, I love that part of it. But I do have a preference for what's in first contact because one of the reasons why it's my favorite Uh, Star Trek movie is because you're seeing this moment when things change and it gives me so much hope that we can have that moment and have things change into a better future and it really moves me at the end where you're actually seeing the first contact with with the Vulcans it's one of those things where I I cry at the at the end of both of these movies I cried Um, but also what I love is that that sub even though it's a subplot that's where you leave it in in First Contact. The last scene takes place in the 21st century, mm. and it's the only Star Trek movie where the ending takes place before the beginning. And there's something about that that I really love, where you're just kind of seeing that that hopefulness. It leaves it on that, re- and, and Star Trek Two, I think, leaves it on 
a hopeful note in in its way. But I, I love the note that First Contact is left on that. I mean, you say it's a subplot, but for me, it's the main plot. Like protecting First Contact and the future is the reason that you have to care about defeating the Borg. So for me, that's actually the main plot, not the subplot. Excellent points. Excellent points there. And I love Ubi Doobie at the end as well. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> the Vulcans are like, what is this dancing? <laughs> well, and, and you know, there's a lot more TNG main characters who are put to better use than the TOS characters are in, in Rathacon. I feel like the supporting cast gets a heck of a lot better uh, t- stuff to do in general on the TNG movies, but uh, especially First Contact because you have, you, not only do you have, you know, Picard goes off with Lily, uh, you have Riker and Troy usually, uh, and Jordy, you know, all helping Zephyr mm-hmm. Cochran. Data has his plot with the Borg, and then you have the great Worf and Picard dynamic, one of the best scenes yeah. of Star Trek. I love it when uh, when Picard calls him a coward. He's like, if you were any other man, I would kill you where you stand. I'm like, man, that is like legit and- and that includes Stop. Cisco. He would kill Cisco over Picard, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, he'd only been in Deep Space Nine for a couple of years. He hadn't really. I know, but still, that includes you know. No, no, I got you. Yeah, but then you know, Wrath of Khan, right? You get great new characters like Savick, right? Savick yeah, became Savick's an iconic awesome. character, in her own right. Um, and she has a lot to do, but it, and Chekhov has a lot to do, as we talked about uh, near the beginning of our discussion. But yeah, of course, you get characters like Uhura and Sulu. They kind of fade in the background. Scotty. He has the nephew, but that's not in the theatrical version. He's just a yeah. random engineering guy, so they don't get that much to do. So I feel like the the cast, you know, as they were in the actual TNG series, the supporting cast was better served in First Contact, very much so than the supporting TOS cast was served in Wrath of Khan. Any thoughts on that, Ken? I agree with you. Uh, the um, you know, Crusher was probably the only one Crusher. that really had a poor limited, Crusher. Nothing role. to do in this. And they made her blonde. To- and yeah, I yeah like that. weird. They did, yeah. and and so that I would say that you're right, and and I was just trying to think, you know, I was going through my head what you were saying, and so I, I agree with you. I think that, uh, and to Justin's point as well, when you talk about the um, the first contact scene, just ironically, we were talking about that on the roundtable I was hosting yesterday, mm. and it got very emotional because it is such a phenomenal, powerful scene. It really is one of the most powerful scenes in all of Star Trek. Well, and I love what you said, Justin, how that's the main plot. Like, because, like, that's how I think of it. That's the climax of the movie, right? Not defeating the Borg. It's like Mm -hmm. the emotional catharsis of the film is like the Vulcans land and you see them shake hands. Like, oh man, we're going to be all right. And that's the Star Trek message, you know? So, so to, to show us kind of like the beginning of Star Trek in this. You know, movie is is it's great, and and it's a very yeah. I, I didn't cry, but I got I got the feels. Hashtag the feels. So, okay. Oh uh, yeah, when his hood popped off, everybody was cheering <laughs> in the theater. That was pretty good. <laughs> so speaking of moments like that, right? I felt like there were a lot of great little moments in this, in this film. Definitely when the like my favorite space battle, for example, in Star Trek is the space battle in First Contact. I thought that was like the best. It's in better than the one in Wrath of Khan. Like I know the Wrath of Khan was like a cool like submarine battle in this, but we finally got to see like a fleet of Federation ships fight a board cube. And yes, we got to see a little bit of that in Deep Space Nine and Emissary, but this was great, especially in one of my like feel good moments, much like a feel good moment at the end, was when the Defiant is about to get destroyed and and then the Enterprise swoops in and stops oh, it, yeah. and then like you hear the Star Trek <laughs> music come in. I'm like, yes! Like that was like a stand up <laughs> and cheer moment. Like, did you guys have other like stand up and cheer moments in, in the film like this throughout? Justin? Well, the Enterprise-E is my favorite canon ship, So, because I have a non-canon ship in the novels I love more. But I love the Enterprise-E a lot. 
And when you see that first scene where it's it's kind of, I guess, coming through a nebula or something, I always like cheer like, yes, it's the Enterprise-E, we're there, you know, because I just love, it's such a sleek and elegant and just beautiful ship. Um, and it's so wonderfully rendered. I mean, I, I like the Enterprise-D, but it's always felt like kind of awkward, but the Enterprise-E is like graceful and fluid and beautiful. And I, I, I love it. And I'm sad that we only saw it in three movies, but mm. yeah, that that's I my miss- moment where I'm like, it's here. <laughs> I miss the D, but I, I I enjoy the E in the films. But I do miss the D, having lived with it for seven years. So, Haley, Haley's shaking her head. Haley, what's up? Oh, uh, no, I like the E, um, but I I still like the D more. I think the E it's darker. Uh, it lends itself to what's going on in the films at this point now. But the D's always home. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Amy agrees. Yeah, I. Well, and I just watched Nemesis, um, and so you really get to see the E in in that movie. I'm sure we'll talk about it. Um, but yeah, I think there are so many good scenes, and and I don't think it's really fair to compare special effects with you know a movie that mm. came out in the '90s versus you know our lovely Wrath of Khan and the models blowing up and it. it and and it's just because I didn't grow up with TOS and I give them all the props for, you know, what it says and what they're doing at the time. But for me, when I see those uh, dated special effects, it sort of takes me out of the movie every single time. And I'm like, just get over it, Nelson. Just get over it. <laughs> and it just every time I see this fake, you know, Whatever. Well, what's what's the worst? To, what is the worst special effect to you in Rathacon? What what when you when you say that, what comes to mind for you? The the one where it gets blown up in the 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 ship, right? <laughs> the Reliant blows up in the nebula. Yeah, I love that. That's like that's an amazing special effect. Oh, <laughs> it, it every time I'm like, really, it's just like this model that's being blown. Well, up. if we want to like. T- well, if we want to talk about special effects, I'm sure we'll be talking about the Star Trek Five special effects on our own. Grade. Yeah, yeah, that's that Star Trek Five. Hate on that special effects as much as you want. I know. No, Genesis, ca- the Genesis Cave. In my opinion, that's a weak special oh, effect. I'll give you that. Right, May- the exterior of City Alpha Five, maybe a little bit because you kind of see like how they're faking it on a soundstage. Um, other than that, I-, I think all the special effects hold up quite nicely in well, Rathacon. Yeah, and I know it's a me thing. I totally get it, but I, you know, I just I think first contact for me just is firing on all cylinders with all of the swooping and the space battles and the even the Borg and how they look and just the integration of technology that we have on first contact just really does it for me. Mm. Okay. All right. I'm ready to go. Go Ken. All right. Ken. <laughs> all right. So first of all, back in the are... day. There were two. Yeah, back the there were there were two space battles in the Wrath of Khan, and the first one was phenomenal. The first one with the the two ships kind of trying to figure out the Enterprise. What's going on with this? We're introduced to the Reliant with this huge shot with it coming right at the screen, red lights, everything. It is huge, and at the time, it was like wow. And then you know the 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 actual battle was was wild. The ships getting blown up that's never been seen before in Star Trek to that to that degree. And then when it fires back with the prefix code and all that stuff and swoops over the top of the Enterprise, mm. everybody was at their edge of the seats for that because they thought the two ships were going to collide. It was really really well done, I thought, and I thought that was a great space battle scene. The opening to um, 
first contact was also great because you got to see all these ships you'd never seen before. And I and I did enjoy it a lot. I love seeing the Reliant, everything you guys talked about. And then you take the um, the Matara Nebula scene, which is also, you know, I mean, they, they took that same that same background, everything, put it right in the best of both worlds, and here we go. We're in another. It's the <laughs> same exact nebula, guys. The exact same one. And they use it in D so, Space Nine as well, a couple times. Yeah, they do. So, you know, I I, I enjoyed them all for for what they did. I, I think the special effects, as far as the space battles, they hold up fine. I, you know, we we did a great podcast. I thought uh, when we talked about computer generated effects versus models and so forth, and um, you know. Sometimes those older ones hold up a hell of a lot better uh, than computer-generated effects. I don't think Star Trek II is really lost. I think Star Trek The Motion Pictures effects are better than all of the other movie effects until we got to the J.J. films. They're just that good. But I, um, I, I, it's not like one's better than the other, in my opinion. I, I, I think they were both done really, really well. I wanted more, though, from First Contact. I thought it was too fast. Hmm. That was my problem. I, I, I love the Enterprise E like you guys do. I think it reminds me a lot of the refit slash Enterprise A, which is my favorite. I think they're very similar lines, both beautiful ships. Um, and, and when they showed it in the very first shot, I was like, that's a great shot. I wish they went a little bit slower so we could see more of it. And then in the battle, you know, it starts, you're not, you, you know, you're hearing it on the screen. It's like, I want to see that from the beginning. And I don't know. Was the battle more than two or three minutes on screen? It was great, but I, it was boy, it was I, only I, a couple minutes when they get there. But it had already been going on for a while. Yeah, and I wanted to see the whole thing because mm. I, I love that stuff. Well, we we got a budget Trek here, Ken. Okay, we can't see the whole. Thing. <laughs> yeah, it's well, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's funny that you say that because I like that it that it's it's quick and then you get into the part in the twenty first century, which which I love. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but well, I can see you. that. I, I can see just, that. Yeah, just me. Because I, I love those effects in Star Trek when they do it. I don't think they've ever done it enough, and they haven't done it as well as as a lot of other movies. So <laughs> oh. that's why I was just saying, I, I love the scene. I just was hungry for a little bit more. That's all. Now, Richard, you're all about the battles, man. What, what did you think But Star Trek Two versus First Contact? Oh, I am so into the battles. <laughs> but um, sadly, neither one of them are, are my favorite. But uh, like my favorite <laughs> of all time. I do love Rather Khan. I, I just like Ken, you know. I remember watching it for the very first time on how I was on the edge of my seat when I watched it for the first time, and it was great. But it has to go to First Contact because I love a great big fleet battle. Just, just probably just like the next action junkie out there as well. So that's the that's the part of the film that I repeat so many so many times over and over again. It was just it's 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 amazing. The first uh, few minutes is amazing. Yeah. Can we talk about the scores? Yes, let's oh, do it. That. Yes. Let's go. Let's, let's do go. it. Uh, yeah, um, I think it's interesting. So, out of the ones that we're going to be talking about, this is uh, two is the only one not by Goldsmith. Mm-hmm. Uh, Star Trek Four was also unique. That was Leonard yeah. Rosenman, right? But of the four yeah. we're talking about on Standard Orbit and Neural. Yes, the four right. we're talking about on these next Fair ones. Enough. Fair so, enough. Um, but I liked it. Um, I yeah. I really love the music. I think it's great. And I like the Goldsmith hails a lot from some of the other ones, which is great. James Horner is my favorite Star Trek composer. James Horner is the only one that's on my phone. (laughs) (laughs) Don't get me wrong. First Contact's uh, score is great, but um, Wrath of Khan is the the only one I actually listen to when I listen to Star Trek music. I like the opening theme, I think, for First Contact the most. Mm-hmm. Um, I do love the Wrath of Khan music as well. And then I like the um, Red Alert 
music on first contact because it's from the motion picture mm. from that Klingon. I love that, that little hint and it just, Oh, it gets me every time. Yeah. Whenever you see Worf, he, he mixes in that motion picture Klingon theme too. So. <laughs> Wait, yeah. Did someone say Worf? Did someone say Worf? What? Rich oh, <laughs> just got his headgear back on. Uh, what about you, Amy? What did you think of these, the music? They both are fantastic and I, I have them on my iPod and at school I'll turn them on when kids are testing or whatever. And, <laughs> Uh, you know, I, Wrath of Khan, that is definitely one. If I'm looking for what music I want to listen to out of TOS, I always go to Wrath of Khan. I, for some, it just pulls to me. I know the music, um, but I love the first contact score as well. And so if I had to choose out of those two, um, it would be first contact, but Wrath of Khan is my go-to for TOS music. Interesting. Well, yeah, so the interesting thing, I, I like the, the music in Wrath of Khan, but I actually prefer Horner's Search for Spock score. That, for me, is, out of those two, I listen to that one far more often. And that's actually one of those three that I rank higher than Star Trek II in my book. Um, but for First Contact, I know it's reusing a lot of stuff, but I absolutely love the beginning that's there and also the ending. That theme when the Vulcans are coming and there's First Contact is just so beautiful. And it's what I, I tend to remember the things at the beginning and the end. So I probably listen to the First Contact one more often. So, But, they're, but I think they're both great. That's... That's actually true for me too. Now that I think about it, I although I love the Horner scores, Star Trek Three is the one I listen to more because I love stealing the Enterprise is my favorite like scene and musical moment of all of Star Trek. And it has and, incredible like moods to it that mm -hmm. go throughout. Anyway, yeah. So I think yeah he did he did improve as he went to, from two to three. So even though Horners are my favorite scores, uh, I, I would still pick I would still pick the James Horner scores over uh, the Jerry Goldsmith scores just personally. But I mean it's it's like oh man like Sophie's Choice, right? <laughs> so what about you, Ken? Oh, um, Jerry Goldsmith by Warp 10. Oh, uh, wow. A thousand times better. Yeah, I, I, the Wrath of Khan score is just okay. The problem is that in that time frame, and it's a little bit different for you. I hate going back to this age <laughs> stuff. But I have no problem. I have, I have no, there's no other way I just, can go. Just own it, Ken. The, 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 I do. <laughs> the theme for Star Trek II is exactly like Battle Beyond the Stars, which is also a lot like Aliens, which is also like 48 hours, and all of his movies back in that era were the same. And I liked Star Trek II, but James, James, Jerry Goldsmith is 10 times the conductor of, of um, James Horner. It's, it's not even close. And Justin, you hit it right on the head. The theme with the Vulcan arriving is probably the most beautiful music, in, not only in, in that movie, arguably across the series. I found that they... There are certain times in movies when you just hit it out of the park, right? And when you're playing with emotion, when there's action going and you've got that rhythm and you've got that that tempo that's getting you along, right? You're you're enjoying the music, but it's the scene that captures it. When you're taking a moment to breathe and see something as as glorious, and I can't think of a better word to use, maybe it's too much, I don't think so, as when first contact happens, when that ship lands, when they're all watching in awe, that music captures that moment like none other in Star Trek. To me, there is nothing that'll ever top it. And you know what? 
Goldsmith does that over and over and over. He did that in the motion picture. Aaliyah's theme is beautiful. The the original theme, which you know TNG stole, let's just be honest, <laughs> is phenomenal, right? And uh, throughout the whole movie, the Klingon theme, Goldsmith has it down. Horner, there was a movie, Battle Beyond the Stars. It was horrible. It was made a year or two before the Wrath of Khan. It's the exact same music. So I could never get into it just because I was like, come on, dude. You know, this Fair is. Enough. He was a young guy. He's a young guy. And he did get better. I mean, geez, he won Academy Awards for Braveheart and other things. He got better with age, but in that era, he he did not have that ability to to move like Goldsmith did. You you wouldn't know Goldsmith did the Waltons to Planet of the Apes to Star Trek. He was phenomenal. That's, I mean, yeah, his his ability to diversify himself was far superior to Horner's. Because even even later in Horner's career, like that villain theme, like da 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 da, like that's in like Troy and just any like. Any anything in the two thousands, he was still uh, you know if you're gonna plagiarize someone, plagiarize yourself. I mean, sure, oh, but it's, it's, it's definitely you, you you knew you knew a Hornet score. You didn't necessarily know it was a Goldsmith score. Well, one last thing, guys, we'll wrap it up here. What do you think about assimilate this? Because I love that moment. That was one of my favorite <laughs> moments. I was a kid in the theater, and I remember like I was watching it with my mom, and then we saw like when Worf he got slashed. We're like, oh no, Worf's gonna die because you see, you know. And then like, and you forget about Worf for a minute, right? Because you know, Picard's fighting Lieutenant Hawk, which Lieutenant Hawk, a great character. Neil Bedonham went on to be, become a, a pretty great uh, actor, and you know, you're like, oh, oh what's gonna happen? Picard's gonna die. Oh no. And then you see him get shot in the space, and you do the slow pan up from Worf, and he's tied the arm of the Borg around his suit, and he's like, assimilate this. I'm like, oh, yeah. Like, that was like such summer movie, like John McClane diehard one liner. It was totally out of place in Star Trek, but I loved it, and I still love it, and it puts a smile on my face every time I think about it. So, Ken, you seem kind of skeptical. What, what do you think? No, no, <laughs> no. I don't, I don't want to stop my foot through a Picasso, but I have no choice. It's a great scene. It's a wonderful scene. But having just rewatched the movie very recently, just last week, uh, <laughs> I was laughing because that is my favorite scene too. But there's a plot hole in it. Okay. He, he should not have had a rifle, right? If you if you watch the action that takes place just before that, and he's using the bat lift mm-hmm. and he, he cuts uh, the guy and all that other stuff, the gun's gone and so is the enemy's gun. Mm. And so when it switched back to that, that was like, oh, and, and it was one of those things I was like, oh, I wish I didn't notice that. Wow. Worf to bridge, replicate so now you've ruined it, it for all me. of us and all of our listeners. Thank I you said so I didn't want to stomp my foot through a Picasso, but I did. Sorry. Uh, I, I equate it to, to like uh, uh, Sabotage and Beyond. It's like, this is ridiculous, but you, I love it anyway. So. I love it too. Don't get me wrong. I just was like, it was just one of those little things. I went, oh, he brought that up. <laughs> I don't think I've ever uh, been in a theater where everyone just started applauding and cheering and all that guy stuff when they saw it, when it panned over to Worf. And I, yeah, it was a great, it was a great scene. It was a fantastic scene. I mean, I was, a, I was a woo. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Lieutenant Hawk. Poor I Lieutenant know. Hawk. But yeah. Richard's got to go. <laughs> You know, I like it, but at the same time, I think my only issue, because I never really thought about the whole rifle thing, was like really it, it, one shot blew that up. It's all the anti-protons. Yes. Said yeah. something about that. <laughs> like that, I think that for me was just like, wait, really? Everything <laughs> but I do in love Star it. Trek has a ton of gasoline in it. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, they said Everything. before, like, don't fire at it because it has a lot of anti-protons. So. And they immediately yeah. start firing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, I, I love Got it. Lucky. Amy, what about you, Amy? 
Yeah, that's great. I remember seeing it in the theaters and, you know, everyone cheers, Woo, mm-hmm. you know, so it just it's so great to see it in a movie and to, in a theater with other, you know, Trek fans. And it's just it's so good. There's so many good things and good parts that I love about it. it I don't even know why I was thinking, but, you know, when they are with the Phoenix, you know, and they're like touching it, you know, and Troy's line, would you three like to be alone? I mean, it's just <laughs> there's so many good one liners. It's just throughout the whole thing. I just love First Contact. Yeah, this movie is full of feel good moments, you know, either be the like action movie. Yeah, moments or Justin, like you were talking about the Vulcans landing like an emotional swelling moment i mean and then data resistance is futile moment like yeah data's back like i i just cannot like this this I, I, more than any other star trek movie this one is the one that makes you stand up and cheer more than any other one that's that's my that's my take on it and you know we can kind of dovetail that into final thoughts amy well no surprise no surprise it i have to give it to first contact Okay, so why is it? I give all the props to Wrath of Khan and for what it did for the franchise and for what it is um, in Star Trek lore. And, you know, we we are here because of Wrath of Khan. I completely understand. I And so it's there. But for a movie that I'm going to enjoy, I've got to go First Contact. I think it is the out of these two, the better movie. I think the storyline uh, is easier to follow. I think it's more realistic. I think the plot and subplot, and as we have debated whether which is which, you know, I think both of those plots are very, very strong. Equal uh, parts that the uh, crew gets, I think it just all builds. We know and love these characters. And, and again, I just... I know I'm TNG, so I know and love these characters more than I do TOS. So again, that's my bias, and so that's that's where I'm coming from. Um, but again, I give Wrath of Khan for all of its props, and I've listened to many, many people and seriously consider what they have to say, as as I do here on this, this episode. Um, but I just have to give it to First Contact. All right, we have one vote for First Contact. Ken, I think I well, know which one you're going to pick. <laughs> yeah, well, on this one, I have to stick with the home team, but it it doesn't take it, it. Like I said, these things stink when it comes to two movies that are just you know memorable and phenomenal in, in in so many ways. But for what Wrath of Khan did, what it represented, um, it, it like I said, it's not even my favorite Star Trek movie. It's up there, but it's not my favorite one. Uh, I I I would watch it over first contact um just because it's um it, it was such a big part of my childhood it's a it's 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 a it's a complete movie and the fact that you know norman Lau is also the ap on all these shows and that amy will probably never be on any of his podcasts now because it's his favorite movie of all time uh you know there's a there's a little thing that says in the contract don't piss off norm so norman uh, I, I, I love uh, you uh, nice try nice try <laughs> edit that out there jack um so <laughs> just kidding I, I, you know like again uh it, it probably has more to do with my biases than being able to pull it and be as neutral as possible uh, because they're both phenomenal but you know for me wrath of khan will always be that iconic film that that launched the whole franchise saved the franchise 
and um, it just has so much so much more pop culture references to it. It's just it's just a bigger movie overall in the lexicon of Star Trek films. It has been and forever shall be your choice on this, Ken. <laughs> well put. So, Justin, where are you coming down on this, my friend? Well, since I said before that First Contact is my favorite of all the Star Trek movies, no surprise, but <laughs> I would choose that. But let me just say a, a, a couple of things, you know, about the the Wrath of Khan. So. Um, there's a lot that I love about it. I love the uniforms. I love Sabic. One of the things we didn't even talk about was the introduction of the Kobayashi Maru, or Maru as the captain says, which is which is an iconic thing in, in Star Trek. And I just love that, that whole idea. And there's such great character um, interactions within uh, within the movie and Chekhov gets a, a good part and the death of Spock is incredible and the Genesis project is really interesting. So there's like tons of things I could list off that I, I love about the movie. But, you know, as I said before, my problem is with Khan being more one dimensional. And I think it is interesting, the, the perspective can, because if I had seen it, maybe, uh, you know, back in the day, um, I, maybe <laughs> I would feel differently about it. But like from, from my perspective and actually like the, TNG isn't the first Star Trek that I saw. The first Star Trek I saw was Star Trek VI in the theaters, but I didn't become a big fan until until much later. So I have a, a big-time affection for for the TOS movies and the characters and, and all of that. I just rank other ones higher. For me, it's three, four, and six that rank higher than than two, but that doesn't three, mean that yes, I don't love a lot man. of it. I, I love three. We'll have to talk mm-hmm. about it sometime. But, but so there's a lot that I love about it, but there's like a big thing that's meant to be the big thing in the movie, Khan, that I just have a big problem with and I just have trouble getting on board with. And I know there's tons of people that disagree with me on that, but that's how I feel about that. But for First Contact, I feel like it just hits on all cylinders for me, like start to finish and and everything. I mean, we've, I feel like we've talked about First Contact probably more than Wrath of Khan in this podcast, ironically, but there's just so many things that I love that I've already talked about. But one thing I want to mention also that I love about First Contact is it feels like the 24th century crossover movie in a way, because you get the Defiant from Deep Space Nine. Um, The Enterprise-E, those are like Voyager sound effects that you're hearing on the ship, (laughs) right? And you also get the EMH version that you see in in Voyager. So that's one of the things I love too. It's like one of those things that also wraps together the different aspects of the 24th century that were going on at the the time. And of course, the the ending is is incredible. So yeah, I mean, I, I love... A lot of the Wrath of Khan, but I love like just about everything about First Contact. So, well said, well said. Interesting perspective, Justin. That's why it's fun having these conversations because you never know what people bring, what people are going to bring to it. So, Haley, where are you coming down? Me next, huh? Uh, today. 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 <laughs> we'll go with today. Today, you know, I. I do love first contact and I love I love everything about it. But you know what? I'm I'm going with Wrath of Khan. Okay. Yeah, you know I do. Well, let's I love... record this tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I do. I love first contact for all the reasons that most Trekkies love first contact. I mean, we do. We love it. But at the same time, you know, I do love Wrath of Khan, and and I'm finding this new love for the original series and for the cast and and what their stories are and what their stories bring, and a little bit because it came out the year I was born. There you go. So we have two for Wrath of Khan, two for First Contact. Richard, it's going to come down to you and me, my friend. Who are you going to vote for? 
Day of the Dove. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Day of the Dove. There you go. There's my answer. All right, no. next to you, Ken or Zach. No. <laughs> Obviously, I already said it. Um, you know, the Wrath of Khan. I mean, I I believe it's one of the best um, Star Trek movies out there. I mean, not to put it where you know, First Contact is like you know a football lengths away from uh, Wrath of Khan. No, by all means, I mean it's like it's like. Uh, yeah, minor details that make it a little bit be- uh, a little bit better because they're all great. Yeah, Wrath of Khan. Okay, Zach. Yep. I well, have been waiting because you really <laughs> haven't given yourself away in any know, of right? this discussion. <laughs> I've been, have I been pretty good about this? Yeah. Are Are you going to be the hero or are you Ensign Lynch? Are you going to be me? <laughs> so I will say this: I love both these movies. Get to I, it. <laughs> <laughs> I grew up watching the original series movies, but I also grew up watching Next Generation. And I remember going to the theater with my parents and seeing Generations and leaving very just like, uh, like killed Kirk. They destroyed my enterprise. You know, Data's acting weird now. What is this? So, you know, the Borg, the, you know, iconic Star Trek villain of Next Generation, uh, you, you go into this movie, you're anticipating time travel, the Borg, right? It's like, all right, this is, this is going to be good. I'm excited for it. You go and you watch it and it's, such an enjoyable experience. We talked about so many great moments. Justin, that's an excellent point you brought up about it being like the 24th century crossover. It kind of it melded everything. I loved how it folded in Deep Space Nine. You had a little voice. Ethan Phillips as Neelix. Oh, wasn't yeah. Neelix, but he had a cameo on the movie. So uh, First Contact delivered on everything I wanted it to be. Wrath of Khan, historically, you know, the most important Star Trek movie. We've been over that many times. I feel like, you know, and also, you also mentioned, Justin, like, man, we've been talking about First Contact more. I think, you know, for, for Kid and I and now Haley, like, we talk about TOS so much, like, when we have an opportunity to talk <laughs> about TNG, we, like, can just dive headfirst into it because we've had, Ken, we probably have, like, 10 episodes on <laughs> Rathacon, I think, in our time here already. So, um, couple. Yeah, a couple. So, all that being said, guys, I'm going with First Contact. Ah! All right. <laughs> for the time. Yes! <laughs> So Ken, well, this makes sense because their uh, Rotten Tomato scores are only like five percent apart. First Contact has a ninety-three percent, and Wrath uh, of Khan has eighty-eight. Ken, if you feel the need to phaser me in the holodeck now, I, I understand. <laughs> There's a lot of threats you know, of violence in this episode. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I, I mean, obviously, Amy scared the you know what out of you, so you, you had to do it. But not, listen, how? how how can you get mad over picking up two 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 great films like this? Exactly. You can't. I mean, exactly. And the best part about all this, guys, is it's a tie. Yeah. See, three and three. Well, so. not in my mind, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> this was extremely tough, though. This was a lot of fun. I mean, I know this went really long, but it was just we could talk another hour and a half about this, I think, because there's just so much to talk about with both these great movies. And, and I'm glad we have them. You know, Regardless, we're always like, what's the next movie going to be? Do I like the next one? Do I not? We're always going to have these to revisit, and that's great. So I look forward to revisiting these for years to come and talking about it with all y'all for years to come as well. Yeah, I think the best part, Zach, is um, well, you know, Haley, Zach, and I are thrilled that, that you guys are on. I think that that's that's a big piece of it. But I do get a lot out of the different perspectives. I really mm-hmm. do. And so the next time I watch these films, just having doing these podcasts with you guys, it's like I didn't think of that, or I need to look at that a little bit more, or you know, what which idiot's going to ruin a great scene because they found a plot hole, uh, you know, whatever <laughs> it is. Uh, but I, I I do enjoy that aspect. That's why I love this this whole tread, trek madness 
whole concept. I wonder if the next one, when we're on your show, will have a clear winner or not. But it's see who the best I know. Of the worst I know is. the clear winner in Amy's mind will be for that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, guys. Well, as Ken said, we love having you guys on Stan Robert. We are looking forward to being on Earl Grey tomorrow. But before we sign off here, Amy, where can people find you out there on the internet? Well, thank you again for hosting. This has uh, been wonderful, and I, I love talking Star Trek, and it's great to get some TOS every once in a while into my blood, so it's it's always good. <laughs> uh, you can find me here on the network. I host um, The Edge. Yeah, that's what it is. I host The Edge. That is our podcast for Star Trek Discovery, and I do that with Patrick Devlin. You can find me on Twitter at Miss Amy Nelson, and um, but my favorite place is on the Babel Conference. I believe you also host Earl Grey. Is that correct? Oh well, yeah, of course, with <laughs> Justin and Richard. <laughs> Unless you're not telling us something. Well, I think we may have mentioned that a few times before. But. Yeah. I, 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 thank you, Amy. What about you, Justin? Well, besides co-hosting Earl Grey, so actually, first up, I want to say also thank you for having us on. It's always such a pleasure. And as listeners can imagine, you know, scheduling among six people has its interesting difficulties, but we found a time and a day, which is good. Mm -hmm. So besides um, co-hosting Earl Grey with Amy and Richard, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at TrekFan4747, where I tweet about nothing but Star Trek. And you can also find me hanging around the Babel Conference on Facebook. Thank you, Justin. What about you, Richard? I'll say say as well. Thank you guys for uh, allowing us to be on here. I mean, next time I want prune juice. Okay, you prune know, juice. You know, well, I get you the time. the three liter <laughs> prune, prune juice. juice. Extra like prune. <laughs> TNG people have some crazy riders, <laughs> but okay. Well, um, you guys can also uh, listen to me also with uh, Amy and uh, Justin on Earl Grey, and I pop in here and there on the Babel Conference, and I'm on uh, Twitter as well. And my handle's X Ransom. All right. Well. Stay tuned tomorrow when we talk about the Final Frontier versus Nemesis on Earl Grey. But those aren't the only things we're talking about on the network. Here's a quick look at what else you might have missed this week on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, the orb. All right. And as for Avery Brooks's ability to portray this mirror Cisco in a way that was believable to everyone awesome. else. I mean, it's it just, awesome. It's his personality. It's yes. Like he's in a way better as a mirror it, than he is yeah. as prime, right? Continuing mission. I saw his Romulan Stormbird uh, <laughs> ship, uh, which is impressive, I have to say. You know, it can a good looking ship. Yeah. Yeah, it is a good looking ship. It's a good looking ship. Awesome firepower. Yeah, yeah, um, <laughs> yeah it, 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 it is Starfleet's worst nightmare in our in our film. Uh, at least until a certain point, when St Starfleet, uh, I guess, regroups and makes a comeback and figures out how to, to beat Stormbird. To the journey. I think what I love about the Captain Proton sequence is it's such a Tom and Harry bromance thing. It's like Jordy and Data playing Sherlock Holmes on The Next Generation. Mm -hmm. It's so charming. Would you be Captain Proton or would you be Buster Kincaid? If we were doing Captain Proton right now. I can't be one of the good guys. I'm sorry. You would be Arachnia. Or no, you would be um, Chaotica. I think I'd be Chaotica's henchman. Oh, okay. Yes. I see that. Yeah, because I, I don't want to be the fully evil dude who's everybody, everybody's trying to destroy. I want to be the guy behind the evil dude. 
See, I could totally pop out and go, the jig is up. Yeah, you could. <laughs> Captain Proton is here. I'd be a great Captain Proton. Oh, no, I saw you more as Buster Kincaid. <laughs> oh, oh, really? I'm a Buster You're Kincaid? A Buster. Oh, man. Thanks, Suzanne. <laughs> Isn't that the way of things in life? You view yourself as a Captain Proton, but really you're a Buster Kincaid. Standard orbit. To me, Star Trek history is like Earth history. It's like, oh yeah, well in 2265, the Enterprise looked like this. That's ridiculous. That'd be like if you make a movie about New York in the 1950s and the World Trade Center is there. Like, oh, well, that's wrong. That's not how it was, you know? But I have to remember that this is fiction and we're all here to have a good time. <laughs> And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out these shows and find out what we're talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcast. If you're an Apple user, get the show on iTunes or the Apple Podcasts app. Be sure to hit the subscribe button. That helps us out greatly and makes it easier for other listeners to find the show. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Stitcher. TuneIn, Speaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and of course, you can stream and download the MB3 file from our website and grab the RSS link as well. If you would like to get in touch with us here at Trek FM, you can always find us on trek.fm slash contact and look in the sidebar on the show page. Or you can go to speakpipe.com slash trek.fm and please leave us a voice message. We haven't had one yet, so we'd love to hear from you. You can also look contact us through Twitter at TrekFM, Facebook at Facebook.com slash TrekFM, and the Babel Conference. Type the Babel Conference, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook or go to our website at TrekFM and click Discussion on the menu bar. Another way you can help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week is to become a patron of the network on Patreon. If you visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm, you'll find our current goals and different milestone contribution levels along with all the great perks we have for you. These perks include early access to content, exclusive content, producer credits, seats on our content development team, and more. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. Speaking of Patreon, thank you as always to our associate producers for Standard Orbit. They are Norman C. Lau, Nick Anastasio, Tim Robertson, Richard Marquez, Corey Elrod, and Dan Rhodes. You guys, uh, your, your contributions, your help, your support mean the world to us, and we appreciate you being associate producers on Standard Orbit. So to find me on the interwebs, you can find me on, Babel, on the Babel Conference. I'm there all the time, or you can find me on Twitter at BostonSCPO. As for me, you can find me on Twitter at MoronZach. That's M-O-O-R-E-O-N-Z-A-C-H. I'm also the host of my own podcast, Always Hold On to Smallville, where we talk about all things Smallville, the young Superman show that ran from 2001 to 2011. And also, you can find me on the Babel Conference uh, complaining about things that uh, I don't like and praising things that I do like, because that's what we do as fans. So I look forward to talking to you all on there. What about you, Haley? Yeah, you can find me... On Twitter, I am Trekkie01D. I know some people like to call it Trekkie10D, but that would be incorrect. I am not on that one. You can also find me on the Babel Conference. I am enjoying uh, chatting with all of the listeners as I am new to this, but it's been fun. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and join us again next time here on Trek FM for another episode of Standard Review.